A reading from Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the Lord said to Abram in a vision, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what shall you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And he said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household shall be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look to heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Lord said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abram said, O Lord God, how shall I know that I will possess it? And he said, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And so Abram brought these and he cut them in half and he laid each half over and against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And he beat away the birds of prey as they came down. And as the sun was setting, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land, and they will be servants, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation whom they serve, and I will bring them out with great possession. And as for you, you will go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation they shall return, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And as the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ernest Hemingway has a famous short story that some of you may know. It's called The Capital of the World. It's the story, the short story of a father who wants to reconcile with his runaway son, Paco. Now, this is in Madrid, and so the father goes to the newspaper, and he takes out an ad, and the ad in the paper says this. He says, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven Papa. Now, for those of you who know how the story ends, you know how it ends. For those of you who don't, you'll have to wait to the end of the sermon to find out how it goes. How did Abraham learn to trust God? This is the question we've been asking during this Lenten season, where the second week into this four-week journey through the highlights of Abraham's life. Abraham was a man of faith. How did that faith grow? 
How did he learn to trust God? In, we're in chapter 15 of Genesis, if you want to turn with me. And you see in verse 6, one of the most famous verses from the Old Testament relating to faith. Verse 6, God has laid out for him this picture that he will provide for him an heir. He will give him land. He will give him blessing. And it says in verse 6, and Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. He trusted the Lord. But what I found amazing is just a couple of verses later in verse 8, it almost sounds like Abraham contradicts himself. He's gone from trusting the Lord, but two verses later, what does he say? He says, but Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? How, how do I know that this is going to be for real? This is really going to happen? It sounds contradictory. And in fact, it sounds like Mark chapter 9 with the man who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Abraham is struggling between faith and doubt. What's interesting is when it comes to faith, when it comes to growing in our trust of the Lord, there's really two parts involved. One is examined a lot. The other is not examined very often. The first thing we examine is the question of God's trustworthiness. Is God's character trustworthy? And the whole story of Scripture shows us a picture that again and again says God is trustworthy. God is worthy of our trust. His character is sound. You can trust this one. But the second part of trust in God, which is often not examined, is the question, okay, God's trustworthy, but can he handle me? I mean, me. Me with all of what me means. All of my challenges, all of my sin, all of my brokenness. Can God, who I know is trustworthy, I know he is faithful, but I'm not. I mean, will God ever get to a place where he finally says, Paul, I've walked you through this far, but you know what? We've come to the end of the line. You know, like, you just, you just don't seem to get it. You fall into the same problems. Trusting God is not just about trusting in his trustworthiness, but it's trusting that he's never going to tire of me. Speaking of tiring uh, of people, uh, my wife and I went to a hockey game this week. Um, and yes, uh, those of you who are on Facebook saw that uh, we saw the Dallas Stars play the Ottawa Senators, and Monica and I wore our Ottawa Senators sweaters. And there's about 20 of us in the room. Um, some people saw that on Facebook and said, have you grown tired of the Senators? No, we've not grown tired of the Senators. Did you give up the Senators? For, oh, sorry, not the Senators. Did you grow tired of the Dallas Stars? And we said, no, we didn't grow tired of, of the Dallas Stars. Did you, uh, did you give up the Dallas Stars for Lent? And I said, well, no, but it seems that the Dallas Stars have given up playing good hockey for Lent. We're sitting there and we're wearing our Ottawa hockey sweaters, feeling a little nostalgic. I mean, we love the Dallas Stars, but we're just remembering, you know, Ottawa and wearing Ottawa Senators jerseys and, you know, the national anthem of Canada's sung and it's, they even sung half of it in French and we thought, wow, this really does feel, you know, nostalgic. And I leaned over to Monica and I said, do you miss Ottawa? Sort of a tender moment. I thought she'd be serious. And she said, no, but I miss the Ottawa Senators. So I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it. It's good. 
But in all seriousness, this idea of giving up on someone, I mean, will God finally give up on us? It's a major part of the faith equation. Will God ever give up on us? I mean, this is us, you and me, real you and me we're talking about here. It's funny, when I moved in the journey of my life, and, and many others know this um, in their own lives, when you move from um, atheist to agnostic to deist to Christian, and each of those are very technical terms. Atheist means I believe there is no God and I can prove it. Agnostic is I'm not sure there's a God, right? But I'm kind of banking on he doesn't care. Deism says there is a God out there, but he's, I don't know, he's not really personally involved. And then there's you know, theism or Christianity that says God is personally involved in his world. To move from atheism to agnosticism, there is no God to, I don't know, maybe there is a God, but I, who knows, was more of an intellectual journey. I finally came to the place where I realized I could not prove intellectually any longer that God didn't exist. It was an intellectual journey to agnosticism from atheism. But going from agnosticism to deism where there's a God, but I don't know how personal involved he is, was more of a um, existential movement. It was kind of like, I finally got to that point when I said, there's just more going on than I can explain. There's more complexity to the universe than I can explain. So I guess there must be some kind of God. But the move from deism to Christianity, from a non-personal God to a personal God found in Jesus, that was the biggest movement. And do you know why? Because that was a moral question. Because I had to face the reality of, okay, if there's a personal God in the universe, how can he possibly deal with me and my broken morals and my broken ethics? I mean, this is, if there is a God of the universe, how can I possibly stand before him? It'd be too much for God for me to stand before him. And of course, the usual response when people come to that place is they get very religious. They get into all kind of merit-based, I'll earn some, you know, some, some standing with God. I'll get very religious and somehow maybe I can earn enough points that when God finally looks at my life, maybe it's almost even. But of course, we know we can never do enough to earn a place before God. If we are to become Christians, we must understand grace. And Genesis 15 is an amazing picture of God's grace. Let's look at this together. Genesis 15, in verse 8, Abraham's moment when he says, but Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? Do you hear how many eyes are in there? Oh, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? I mean, he's really saying to God, this is me we're talking about here. I mean, I know you're trustworthy and faithful, but I'm not. I mean, are you going to get to the point where you're just absolutely tired of me? And God's response is verse 9. And it's a weird response. What does God say? To, Abram's asking, you know, how can this ever happen to me? I mean, this is me. Will you ever tire of me? And God says, get me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And you're like, what is that about? And what God is doing, Abram knows exactly what God is doing. God is going to have, make a covenant with Abraham. He's going to make a covenant. You see, Abraham goes and he takes the animals. No further questions asked. He doesn't ask for further instructions. Abraham knows exactly what he's doing here. He goes and gets these animals. And without instruction, he cuts them in half. And he puts the carcasses in a nice little row. Sort of a horrifying image, isn't it? you know, these dead animals in a row, because Abraham knows that God is about to make a covenant with him. You see, a covenant uh, is a contract. It's a promise. It's a binding commitment. 
And in the ancient Near East, covenants were made differently than we make contracts today. When we make contracts today, what do we do? We write them down, right? If you're signing a mortgage, you kill a tree to write down all the paper, right? And why do we write down all these pages and pages and pages? Because we're saying, if I break my side of the contract, there are consequences. And I'm owning those consequences. That's what a contract is, right? If I break my side of this, there's consequences, and I'm going to own those consequences. But in the ancient Near East, there's no paper. You think of going up the Ten Commandments on, you know, on, on, on stone? We're going we're to etch out a mortgage on stone? No, instead they're dramatic. We're going to act it out. This is an oral culture. And so covenants were made with great drama. And so what happens here in a covenant is both parties who are about to make this binding agreement, this contract, this covenant... Both parties will state their promises. For Abraham, God is saying to Abram, I will give you land, I will give you offspring, and I will bless you. That's my side of the covenant. Your side of the covenant is faithfulness. You will faithfully follow me. You will not go after other gods. You will faithfully live my way according to my law. That's the two sides of the covenant. And so then they get the animals and they make this horrifying little display here of these dead animals. And then what happens to seal the covenant in an ancient or Eastern context? Both parties walk down the middle between the animal carcasses. It's like a bloody, horrifying procession. And what they're doing as they walk down between these dead carcasses is saying, if I should ever break my side of the covenant, may it be so to me as these dead animals. If I should break my side of the covenant, may death come upon me. And of course, if it was an imbalance of power, if you had a king making a covenant with a subject, or you had a very wealthy man making a covenant with a very poor man, then only the poor man or the the smaller, weaker man would actually walk between and say, if I break the covenant, may death come upon me. That's what a covenant making was. And that's what Abraham and God are doing in this moment. They are enacting a covenant. But something amazing happens in this covenant ceremony with Abram. Something that's so surprising. Abram's so shocked by this. You see, in verse 12 and verse 17, we see the whole gospel. The whole gospel is contained in those two verses. Verse 12 of chapter 15 and verse 17. In verse 12, Abraham has laid out the carcasses and he's ready to walk. He's ready to walk between the carcasses and say, I will be faithful, I will be faithful or I will die. And it's, he's probably thinking, God is going to scare me into obedience. It's an old religious tactic. It's been used for generations. I'll be scared into obedience. And so Abraham is standing here in front of these dead carcasses, ready to walk. The inferior party, ready to walk. But then something amazing happens. Verse 12, two things fall on Abraham. Two things fall on him. First thing falls on him is a deep sleep. A deep sleep falls on Abram. And you say, well, it can't really be a real sleep because God continues to interact and talk with him. And that's why some commentators have said the better translation is a great immobilization falls on him. In other words, he's immobilized. He can't move. God comes upon him in such a way that he just cannot move. He, wow, I, I can't move. The dead carcass is there. I want to walk between them to make this covenant happen. But he can't move. Deep sleep 
Immobilization falls on Abram, making him unable to walk. And then the second thing that falls on Abram is this dreadful and deep darkness. It's a horrifying image. Some have said maybe it's sort of, you know, setting the stage for what God is about to say next. Because what he's talking about next is the exodus. He's talking about the fact that Israel is going to go into Egypt and suffer for 400 years. And eventually they will be led out. And so they say, oh, this is kind of the theme uh, ambiance coming in. Let's make it really dark and dreadful. But I don't think that's the reason it gets dark and dreadful whatsoever. It's not about the exodus, ultimately. It's about what God is about to do in verse 17. Abram has been immobilized before these dead carcasses, this covenant ceremony that he now can't walk and enact. And in verse 17, something horrifying and amazing all at once takes place. And I think that's where the dread darkness comes from. I think all of creation and heaven looks down on this moment and says, in horror, how can God do what he's about to do? And here's what he does. In verse 17, we read that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appear. He said, well, what's that all about? I mean, have you read that passage for many years and wondered, what is this text about? Well, Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. It says that when God came down on Sinai in fire, there was smoke around the mountain. Right? That in Exodus 19, God's very presence on Mount Sinai is described as smoke and fire. And when God is leading Israel through the wilderness, he appears as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. The smoking fire pot and the fiery torch is the very presence of God. God shows up in verse 17. Yahweh, the Lord, shows up in verse 17. That is who the, flame, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch is. It's God himself showing up. Abram's having an epiph- a, a theophany. He's seeing the Lord. But then something amazing happens in verse 17. Remember, Abram's immobilized. And this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch walks, passes, between the carcasses. And you say, I thought that the covenant ceremony said that if I should break my part of the covenant, then what I'm saying in that moment is if I break my word, I will die. So God is walking through the carcasses saying, if I don't fulfill my side of the covenant, I will die. And as amazing as that sounds, it gets even more amazing Because then verse 18 comes and says, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Abram never moves. Abram is still immobilized. Abram doesn't walk between the carcasses. Abram doesn't walk between them saying, if I break my side of the covenant, then I will die. No, only one person walked through the carcasses that day, and it was Yahweh, it was the Lord. The Lord walked alone through the carcasses. And so here's what it means. Here's the whole gospel summed up in Genesis 15. God is saying, I will bear both sides of the covenant. I will bear the consequences of both sides of the covenant. God is saying to Abram, he's saying, okay, understand this in this moment. Understand that if I, God, if I don't live up to my promises to you, may I be killed. But then he goes on to say, 
But Abram, if you don't live up to your promises, may I be killed. But I thought it was the inferior party that walked alone. God makes himself the inferior party. God comes and says, I will bear the full weight of the covenant and their consequences on myself. Because Abram, I know you can't. You're going to fail. And I don't want you to die. And so I will die. You see, 2,000 years later, that dread darkness, 2,000 years after Abram and this covenant was founded, that dread darkness fell again on the earth. Those of you going through the Lenten devotional read this reading yesterday from Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was bearing the sins of the world. Because he was bearing the consequences that should have fallen on us. God in Jesus Christ was fulfilling that covenant that he made that day with Abram with that smoking fire pot and that flaming torch. Genesis 15 is God's way of saying, I will never, I will never tire of you. There's nothing you can do if you are with me, if you are in this covenant, there's nothing you can do that will cause me to tire of you. Because I have sealed from the beginning the promise that when you fail, I will take it. On the cross, God kept his promise. Because as we read a moment ago, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that whoever believed in him would not perish, bear the consequences of their broken covenant, but they would have life eternal. That is grace. Unearned, unmerited grace. How did Abraham learn to trust God? Well, he asked God, how can I know? How can I know you won't give up on me? I'm a sinner. You know me. I'm broken. How, how is this going to work? It's, it's just not going to work. Will you ever tire of me? And God says, I'll show you. Get the carcasses. Let's make a covenant. But you're not walking today. I alone will walk between the carcasses. I alone will bear your failure to live up to the covenant. You know, as we come weekly to the Eucharist, we are reminded of what Jesus has done. Jesus who says, this is my body broken for you. This, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, hear those words. As you come to Eucharist and you hear those words spoken over you, the body of Christ given for you, do you see the fulfillment of that smoking fire pot and that flaming torch? Do you see the fulfillment that God will never tire of you? 
because he will bear all of your failures and mine. And as we do that again and again, we begin to trust him more. We begin to find faith in the one who will not tire of us. Ernest Hemingway's short story, The Capital of the World, where that father wants to reconcile with his runaway son, Paco, and he takes out that ad in the Madrid newspaper saying, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. The story goes on to tell us that in Madrid, Paco is a very common name. And so when the father arrives at Hotel Montana, noon on Tuesday, 800 sons are there looking for their fathers. Because we are in a world that is desperate to know that they will not be given up on. We live in a world where we are desperate to find a father who will never tire of us. God says, I'll show you. I'll show you I'll never give up on you. I'll walk between the pieces. I will bear your sins on the cross. So come to the table today. You want to learn more trust? You want to learn more faith? I do. And so I come. Come to the table. And let the Father show you again that he will never give up on you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.